Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Over the course of the past weeks, when Israelis have taken to the streets in protest against the judicial revolution being promoted by the Netanyahu government, a growing image has been rows and rows of women wearing red cloaks with white bonnets, standing vigil silently. They are, of course, dressed as handmaids from Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel-turned-TV series The Handmaid's Tale. The handmaids, who were initiated by a feminist organization called Building an Alternative, began as a very small group, but they've expanded, they've grown, they're everywhere you look. The purpose of their demonstration is to highlight the damages of the proposed judicial overhaul to the rights of women in Israel, as well as other initiatives by this far-right, religiously-dominated coalition. So what is this damage exactly, and what are the consequences for women if the judicial reforms go through as drafted? Here to explain all of it to us is Professor Ruth Halperin-Kadari. Ruth is the founding director of the Rackman Center for the Advancement of the Status of Women at Bar-Ilan University. She's led the UN Committee on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, and she's served as the chair of the Advisory Committee to the Authority for the Advancement of Women at the Israeli Prime Minister's Office. Welcome, Professor Halper and Kadari. Hi, Alison. Thank you for having me. So, with women dressed as handmaids standing in front of you, you gave this really moving speech at the demonstration in front of the president's residence in Jerusalem recently. And you said, quote, I'll quote you to yourself, women in Israel are facing the biggest threat to their status, to their rights, and to the rights of their daughters since the founding of the state. So that's a pretty strong declaration. I remember two months ago, it feels like two years ago, but it was two months ago, I had another feminist scholar on the podcast, Professor Yofi Tirosh, and she was saying right after the election that uh, she feared about a lot of terrible things happening to women with this government. It kind of sounds like you think these fears are being realized right now. Absolutely. It's really difficult to grasp how many things have already happened since that time only two months ago. And I said that statement um, in my in my speech at the demonstration to shock, just like um, the Handmaid's exposition is also geared towards uh, shocking the audience. But but these are not exaggerations. Um, This is really the the reality that we're facing now because the um, agreements between the uh, coalition parties are very, very clear and the intents of the government, um, not just for women, but women are at the focus of their different proposed measures. They are very clear. And first and foremost, the the weakening of the power of the High Court of Justice will have a devastating um, impact on the ability of women to fight back and women who will attempt to regain rights that we're going to lose now will not have anywhere to turn to. If we, you know, just very briefly, um, if we want to recall Uh, what the High Court of Justice had done for women throughout the years. If it weren't for the High Court of Justice, 
women would still be forced to retire at the age of uh, 60 instead of 65 or 67. Women would not be able to sue for gender discrimination in employment, in, in hiring, in uh, closing the wage gaps. Um, women would still not be eligible to half of the uh, marital property um, if their disputes are adjudicated in front of the rabbinical courts. You can basically say that, legally speaking, even if we have, at least in some areas, quite um, good legislation, it is only thanks to the High Court of Justice that some of this legislation is really implemented. And so it's really the benchmark that the High Court of Justice put throughout the years that now we're, we're going to lose. Then, obviously, we can look at all these proposed bills, that some of which have already started to be advanced at the Knesset. So Ruth, can we put some order in this? We have legislation that is already in the pipeline by the new government that's been approved. We have items that are in the coalition agreements, which we presume is going to be coming forward. So let's go through some of those items and you can discuss how you think they're going to hurt the rights of women and the lives of women. First of all, you mentioned earlier the rabbinical courts. The ultra-Orthodox parties want to expand the power of the rabbinical courts in what way? So, first of all, we have to remember that Israel has never been a democracy in the sense of full equality between women and men, because we are the only purported uh, liberal democracy among the global north, which still maintains exclusive jurisdiction for religious courts in matters of marriage and divorce, and there's no civil marriage and divorce in Israel. And all the religious laws that have exclusive jurisdiction over marriage and divorce in Israel, they're all discriminatory, they're all patriarchal, and when uh, you look at the judiciary in this area, which is the for Jews, it is the rabbinical courts, it's exclusively male. There are no women judges, no women dayanot in the rabbinical courts. This is where we start. The existing condition is no picnic is what you're saying, right? Absolutely. And our starting point is, is very low to begin with, and it's never been equal or egalitarian. But if for the time being, the jurisdiction, the authority of the rabbinical court is limited to the area of marriage and divorce, what they want to do now, and they've already started preparing this uh, for the first reading at, at the parliament, so it's the first, it's already at the first stage of legislation, is to allow for the rabbinical courts to arbitrate in all other civil matters. And this uh, poses as if their authority or their jurisdiction depends on the consent of the parties involved. But if you take, for example, the ultra-Orthodox school teacher who very, very badly needs the, the job that she's being offered and the school that wants to hire her says, okay, you, you have this job, but you have to sign that if you ever want to sue us, for instance, you know, if we neglect to pay you or we reject your right for, um, let's say, pension funds or whatever, and you want to sue us, you can only do that at the rabbinical court. Now, does she have any choice 
can, can you look at that agreement as if she really consented to the to give the authority to the rabbinical court? And the same goes with the whole issue of um, property relations between husband and wife. Right now, the rabbinical courts do not have the jurisdiction to rule over property relations between marital property in general. It, they can do so, but only under very, very limited circumstances. And, and now, if this law passes, that means that every husband, in addition to his absolute control over the divorce, can condition the divorce on the consent of the wife that they will litigate the property matters at the rabbinical court. And we have so much experience with the discriminatory and I would also say misogynistic views, at least of some of the judges at the rabbinical courts. So this this really poses extreme danger for women. We're going to have a parallel judicial system here, which is exclusively male, no entry for women as judges, and we're going to have it parallel to, to the civil judicial system in 2023. Another issue, gender separation. It's been a bone of contention for years. In many cases, the uh, ability of women to fight against gender separation and the rulings in favor of women have come from the courts again uh, when there have been not so much laws, but uh, but regulations, for example, on buses, etc., that allowed gender separation. And what many of our listeners are also interested in is the situation at the Western Wall. Should the judicial reforms pass? Should whatever the Knesset uh, legislates become the law of the land and you know be unable to touch? What are we looking at at the wall and what are we looking at in terms of gender separation? It's, it's all very bad, <laughs> all these projections. So what, what we're looking at is a bill that had already been tabled um, at the Knesset to uh, allow for gender segregation in many, many public spaces, including in public transportation, including in academia, including in cultural events. So let's take this scenario. Let's say that this law is really passed. And then let's say that the overall judicial revolution or overhaul or whatever you call it um, passes. That would mean that the High Court of Justice will be able to strike down a law only if it opposes a clear right which is guaranteed in the basic laws. But equality, or gender equality, and equality, is not explicitly guaranteed in the basic law of human dignity. So it's only if the High Court of Justice will, um, as it did before, we want to expand this right. And I don't see the current construction of the High Court of Justice doing that. But even if some of the judges want to go along that way, again, they will be able to strike down such a discriminatory law only if, now there are various proposals here, but all of them require a huge majority of the panel of judges at the High Court 
of justice, some say 11 out of 15 or, or, or eight out of 11, this is, this is never going to happen. And then even if it does happen and the High Court of Justice goes to that extreme and strikes down this, this law, the parliament, according to the plan, will have the ability to override and to legislate this discriminatory law once again. So, so we are at a dead end. There will not be any ability of the High Court of Justice to intervene and to strike down any such discriminatory legislation. And, and the same goes for the plan at the Western Wall, where the bill, which has been um, put aside for the time being because they realized what a public outcry um, the, this, this really caused when, when it was raised, but have no fear. I mean, they're definitely going to reintroduce it. What did the bill contain? The bill requires a modesty code, very, very strict modesty code from women at the Western Wall, and it uh, precludes the ability of mixed prayers. So the blessing that we had in the past decade or so, um, maybe more than a decade, of the uh, Ezrat Israel, The egalitarian section. And there was also some mixed prayer in the plaza area as well. Right. So this will no longer be allowed. And same goes for women of the wall. They will no longer be allowed to pray with Torah scrolls and with uh, prayer shawls um, at the Western Wall. It's a huge, huge regression. Really, it's it's a dystopian image. Till now, the opposition or when the, the women of the wall were being rebuffed or not treated right, it was because of the authorities at the wall site itself. But now we're talking about it becoming the law of the land, right? Yes. And once again, the High Court of Justice will not be able to intervene here. Mm-hmm. There's also a proposal to change anti-discrimination laws, which would allow discrimination for religious reasons. And again, if that is not able to be overturned by the Supreme Court, we're talking about a law that will essentially sanction discrimination against women because you can discriminate against women for religious reasons, correct? It's crazy. So let's say it's uh, summertime and um, your daughter wants to go down and um, buy Coke at the um, 7-Eleven down the corner and she wears a um, very short sleeve uh, shirt. The owner of the store will be able to tell her that she's not allowed in unless she covers herself. Or, you know, simply have separate hours for women and men under the pretext of other customers not feeling comfortable at the presence of women for religious reasons, because this law will will allow clear discrimination, uh, not just for the religious reasons or feelings of the service provider, but also uh, for the sake of, of other customers at that enterprise. And this can go much, much further for other areas as well. Think about a pharmacist who will no longer um, be willing to sell contraceptives because that goes against um, his or, or her religious belief. So this, this sounds, I think, similar to what, uh, what our listeners in the U.S., Texas, for example, are now facing, right? So it's not being discussed now in Israel, but 
I fear that this is another direction that um, that we'll be facing pretty soon. Yeah, I can't help thinking back to the beginning of the Trump years and the Women's March and the fight over uh, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, people were saying, why are you women going so crazy? Why are privileged women out on the streets? It's not going to be so bad. It's not like Roe versus Wade is going to get overturned or something. And then... <laughs> And then you look and again, you know, uh, everything around uh, here is centered as it was there around the, the composition of the courts. And that is really the uh, the eye of the storm in terms of the fight. And it's almost like the experience of the United States should serve as a warning uh, light for for Israeli women right now. It's not just the United States. What we're experiencing here is is called democracy backsliding. Right. And we have clear examples of states in in Europe. Um, This is exactly the way that Poland had gone and Hungary and and Turkey. And in each of these states, it was, it is, still is, women who are paying the the highest price. Now, in, in Israel, things are much more complicated. And as I said, our starting point is lower than the starting point of women, where women had been, for instance, in, in Hungary and in Poland. And we obviously haven't said anything about Palestinian women, migrant workers, asylum seekers, haven't said anything about the occupation, right? So things here are much, much more complicated. And and um, I really fear that all these dystopian visions that, that we have are, are totally realistic. Well, while we're being worried here and uh, talking about depressing subjects, um, how do the changes affect the fight against violence against women? Because uh, we have a big problem with domestic violence and femicide in Israel, and there have been a lot of forces pushing for change and pushing to help. And part of the Handmaid's protest is pointing to the fact that uh, this government is heading in a direction that is going to damage that fight or make it less effective. It already has. The Brackman Center has been at the forefront of... um, attempting to have Israel uh, join the Council of Europe Convention, which is known as the Istanbul Convention, uh, the Convention Against Gender-Based Violence and Domestic Violence. And and it's considered the gold standard of what what a country, what a government um, has to do in order to really fight violence against women. And we, we worked on it very, very hard for more than six years. And during the um, time of the last government, we we really got very, very close to actually having Israel join this uh, convention. We got the formal invitation. And what was needed was just the final approval by the government. And what happened then was that all the right-wing organizations and religious um, political powers got together and sabotaged this move and convinced then um, Minister of Interior, Ayala Chaked, to withdraw her, um, her agreement. And what we have now is within the coalition agreement between the Likud and the Zionist Religious Party, we have a clear commitment not to join the Istanbul Convention. So uh, you, you really have to think about this hard to, 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 to repeat it, because what you usually have in coalition agreements is you know, to move forward and to, to do things, to, to, to adopt things. Um, you commit 
very often you commit to many things that eventually you you're unable to do but what we have here is for the first time ever a commitment not to do the right thing not to advance not to do what's really needed to um to fight against violence against women and we see it every day for instance there was a bill that already passed the first reading at the past knesset a bill to utilize what's known as the electronic um surveillance um which is kind of like um an ankle like an, an ankle bracelet right a bracelet exactly a bracelet which um somebody it would usually be the man uh, against whom um there is a restraining order um that means that a, a court has already found out that he really poses danger to his uh, partner to to the woman um so so this bracelet allows to track to trace and to track down whenever he gets near her and this allows for a very very high degree uh, of of protection and this passed the first reading everything was ready for approval and now what we have is minister of national security itamar bengvil who actually put a hold onto that and refuses to advance this bill falsely claims that um it's not balanced and he raises the fake claims about uh, women bringing false complaints against men it's just um a, a typical misogynistic attitude towards women and proves all our fears that this is the direction that this government is is going in and yet there's not that much of a gender gap ruth you're very familiar with the modern orthodox religious zionist community that's where you come from supposedly they honor the family they respect women i mean it it just seems very difficult to understand why they actively try to uh, stop measures that would protect women from being harmed by violent husbands or dangerous husbands it's on the premise that this would somehow undermines the authority of the husband and the father i beg to differ here i know that these political forces claim the title of religious zionism but this is certainly not the religious zionism that i grew in and that many of my friends um still still belong to this is extremely fundamentalist forces that are much much closer to ultra orthodox groups that overtook this title of religious uh, zionism so what we see here are the same patterns the same rhetorics the same ideology that we see by extreme religious forces in east europe and in the united states as well um right wing um evangelics all claiming um traditional quote unquote family values which are all in fact a cover for clear control of uh, women by men 
and diminishing the space of women and the power of women. And this was, if I go back to their sabotaging the intent to join the Istanbul Convention, this was the same rhetoric that they used then, that by joining that convention, Israel would commit to advance gender equality and equality within the family, and they're simply against it. Nothing here is new. What's new is that these people, these groups, are now in control of the government and and of the state. There's been criticism of the handmade protests as saying it's overkill, it's overly dramatic. But from hearing you talk, it kind of sounds like an accurate reflection of where we might be headed. As someone who engages deeply with the issues, what do you think of the handmade protest phenomenon? Has it been helpful? Is it too uh, gimmicky? Do you think it's been effective in spotlighting the, the potential danger to women's rights uh, within the greater protest movement? I think it's brilliant. I think it's had a huge effect. And if it hadn't been for this uh, ingenious, um, you can say gimmick, but that's legitimate. If it hasn't been for that, I'm not sure that even you and I would be now talking about women's rights and the danger for women's rights that this government and and this uh, judicial overall plan is, is, is posing for women because it is so shocking and and creates such strong reactions, um, it just proves how effective it is. And I admire Bonot Alternativa building alternatives for uh, for coming up with with this. I, I applaud them. Well, speaking of women you admire, isn't it really interesting that the two really staunch bulwarks against the reform, sort of the ones who are standing very strong, are two powerful women in the legal establishment, Supreme Court President Esther Chayut and the Attorney General Galibarav Miara. They're both female. They're both uh, women. Is this an issue of good timing? Is it a coincidence? Uh, or do you think that uh, because that they're female and happen to be in these positions, they're becoming symbols of the opposition to the judicial revolution? I really admire their strength and the fact that they're unbending. It, it is some coincidence that both at the, at the top of the pyramid are are female now, but um, we, we've had female presidents of the Supreme Court before. And in general, uh, when you look at the um, civil service, um, the, the area of, um, of law, the legal establishment, um, you do have a much higher representation of women there than in any other government section. So it's not surprising that we have women at the top of the pyramid uh, here. And I think that it's not surprising that it's women who who dare, who are not fearful, who are not being intimidated by all these male chauvinists um, who uh, lead this revolution. So you can definitely see the gender pattern here. You know, look at those who are leading this this revolution, this overhaul. Three Ashkenazi men, not all three are religious, but the religious stamp here is pretty strong. And and these are two women who are standing uh, against them and um, they need all our support.
So in addition to being a feminist scholar, you are an expert in law. There's been a recent offer by the government to soften, to compromise their proposal in terms of specifically the uh, the composition of the committee that chooses the justices. Do you see in the recent offer any kind of hope of any kind of uh, negotiated settlement of this terrible confrontation we're in? I'm afraid to say that this is really not softening at all. It is the same and, and perhaps even worse plan just in in disguise. It's a scheme by the coalition, by the government. Maybe they realized uh, their initial plan cannot go through, so they changed very, very little there. And as I said, they might have actually made it worse. So, uh, you know, if we look at the details of their proposal right now, out of 11 members of the Committee for the Appointment of Judges, there's going to be six members who are totally part of the coalition, three ministers and then three members of the parliament. And there, there's going to be just a need for a simple majority, six out of 11, for the appointment of the first two judges' upcoming uh, appointments. So, so it's a joke. It's a complete politicization of the appointment of judges and it's a complete control of the coalition. And that's what they need in order to start rolling all the other parts of, of their plan. If, if this passes, we are going to find ourselves in the worst constitutional conflict crisis that, that we could ever envisage. And I, I'm really fearful um, for, for that. I'm, I'm afraid to say I'm, I'm not optimistic here. Well, I guess uh, you're going to be looking at a lot more weeks of uh, participating in demonstrations and getting up and, uh, and giving speeches. So you'll have to uh, gather your strength for that. <music> Professor Ruth Halpern Kadari from Barilan University, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Alison, and um, happy Pesach. <laughs> we'll try, right? Yes, we'll try. <laughs> and that wraps things up for this episode of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Professor Ruth Halper and Kadari, and to my producer and editor, Nahara Malkin. Until next time, I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer. Shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.